All right, so we are up to verse 4 in our memory verse challenge for this summer. So we're working on Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. We're going to put it on the screen, we're going to read through it, then we'll take it off the screen, and we'll try it one more time. So this is Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, on whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and were the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that's it. Good job. I kind of messed it up in the middle there. Let's try to do it without the screen. All right. So if you know it, say it out nice and loud. All right. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. All right. Good job. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2 today. There are a few Bible passages, a few verses that I come back to over and over again throughout my preaching ministry here because they, they so help us understand the true nature of the gospel. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, they are two of those. Probably they're in the top three of the passages that I go back to and over and over again, because those two verses, they have the power to unmake, to, to free us of the deadly misunderstanding that we can be accepted by God if we're good enough. They completely destroy that argument. Now, our beloved Katie Elliott has firmly adopted this. She wants the whole world to know it, and so let me show you the back of her car. So maybe this is to, uh, to help others. Sometimes this is to help remind ourselves. But let's zoom in on one of those there. Notice it says, good deeds will not save you. And she references Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Those are our, our core verses today. Now, most people in the United States, maybe most people in our area, believe that we are generally good. And that probably, hopefully, maybe we're good enough to be accepted by God to be welcomed into heaven at our death. But this is not the case. The gospel tells us that none of us are good enough. None of us will be accepted on the basis of our own merit. But the good news of the gospel is that even though we were enemies, even though we were rebels against our king, God made a way for us to be accepted to be welcomed into his family. That's the core message of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's really the core message of the book of Ephesians. It's the core message, really, of the whole Bible and of the gospel. 
Now, if you've been around our church for a long time, this is already very familiar, and you may be thinking, what could I possibly get out of a sermon about something that I'm so familiar with? Well, I want to try to take a different track today. Rather than simply going through, explaining what the passage means, helping you understand how to apply it to your life, I want to use this as something of an equipping time. Every one of us who are in Christ know people who are outside of Christ. I want us to walk through this passage in such a way that we will understand it and be able to use it in a conversation with somebody who has not yet trusted in Christ for salvation. Now, this is not something that you can do with a two-minute conversation with a stranger, but this is something that you could do over the course of a few conversations with somebody that you already have a relationship. So maybe picture somebody in your mind that you love, that you care about, and they are not yet in Christ. Think about them. Think about their circumstances. Think about the, the questions and the hang-ups that they might have as we go through this. And I hope that you will see that this particular passage is something that you could walk through slowly and carefully with somebody, helping them to understand the gospel. If you look in your bulletin, there's a printout of the whole passage, so if you want to mark this up, you can do it that way. Even better, if you want to mark it up in your Bible so that you have it permanently with you, that would be great. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I don't know about you guys, but when I was in school, I was told never to start a sentence with and. The Apostle Paul did not go to the same school that I did, so he starts off, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, if you're sharing the gospel with someone, and you were going to start with this passage, Notice, it starts off in an offensive way. If you're sharing the gospel with someone, you don't want to come across as a jerk or a know-it-all or you know, you're looking down at somebody, you're holier than thou. But this passage itself starts off offensive. It points the finger at your beloved friend or family member and says, you were dead. But notice that the, the rest of the and the rest of the fingers on the hand are pointing back at you. And this is the good news of the past tense of this verse. The person that you're talking to needs to understand that before Jesus saved you, you were dead. And if they're outside of Christ, they're currently dead. But the fact that you were dead and now are alive in Christ can give them hope. They, if they receive that bad news that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, they can have the hope that you currently enjoy to no longer be dead. When you share the gospel with someone, I encourage you to tell them about your life before Christ. If you were dead before Christ saved you, tell them about that. Were you addicted to something? Were you caught in sinful patterns? Were you destroying relationships? Were you just self-sufficient, full of yourself and full of pride? Explain to them what it was like when you were dead in your sins. Maybe they even knew you back then. And they see a change in you now. According to this verse, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we could take some time to say, okay, what's the difference between trespass and a sin? We're not going to do that. We're just going to say, there are lots of different kinds of sins, but they're all sins. 
and we're all guilty of them and hopelessly lost in them, dead in them, unless Christ saves us. We are all, no matter our sins, on a level playing field. As you think about sharing the, the gospel with a non-saved family member, friend, neighbor, co-worker, there's probably a certain amount of fear that you'll receive some pushback because a lot of times, Christians, we are perceived as arrogant, proud, holier than thou by the unbelieving world. Now, if that's the case, for us in particular, it's probably because we've forgotten the glorious truth, the fact that we were dead and now are alive. We were completely dead in our sin. You remember the classic scene from the classic movie, The Princess Bride, in which Miracle Max explains that there's a difference between being mostly dead and all dead. He says, he's only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And do you remember in the case, according to Miracle Max, in the case of all dead, there's really only one thing you can do. Go through his pockets and look for loose change. Yep. But when we're talking about this spiritually dead, none of us were mostly dead, slightly alive. We were all, all dead. And dead people don't save themselves. They are entirely dependent on somebody else to resurrect them. Verse 2 says this, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul says we once walked in our sins. We were actively carrying out our sins. He's going to make a little bit of a distinction here. He's going to make more of a distinction later between the idea of uh, inherited sin or natural sin that we just were all born with and the personal sin that we are guilty of. Here he's talking about the personal sin. He's saying, you walked, you walked in these sins. You followed the course of this world. You were active in it. The person you're talking to about the gospel may or may not believe in the idea of sin, or if they do believe in the idea of sin, they may say, I, I think we're all basically good. And some of us have a little bit of sin, but... It's really not that big of an idea. And you can point them to this verse, and you can gently help them see that God has a different perspective on this, that God takes our sins very seriously. He takes it so seriously that he refers to us as his enemies before he saves us. This is the Christian doctrine of total depravity. To be depraved means to be corrupted, to be sinful, to be polluted. We are, by nature and by our own choice, depraved. Totally. If you were going to try to convince your friend of this with some Bible verses, where would you go? Where would you go to point out that God in his word says we are all sinful? Maybe Romans 3.23 comes to mind. It's a classic. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a good short verse to take him to. And as long as you're in Romans 3, you might as well go back to 3.10. 
and get a bigger perspective. It says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Some serious words. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you'd like to quote this to with a little bit of strength in your voice. Somebody who you feel like their throat is an open grave and their tongues deceive and the venom of poisonous snakes is under their lips. But notice these verses just like the message that we read in verse in chapter two of Ephesians, they include all of us in this. Outside of Christ, what I just read is true of you and me. You think of the best, sweetest, kindest, gentlest person you know, the reality of their heart outside of Christ is what I just read here. Now, if you're talking to somebody and trying to convince them of this, this would be a good time to do some confession, to tell them how these verses are true of you. And, and maybe they've known you as that sweetest, kindest person. They're like, no way this could be true of you. Well, be honest with your friend. Tell them what really goes on in your heart and your mind. Show them that without Christ, these verses are true of you. That humble confession can give your friend hope. It can show them that no matter where they are, no matter how far they are from God, like these verses, there is hope that Jesus can save them. So let's go back to Ephesians 2. I'll read it again. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there's two particular courses or paths mentioned here. There's the, the path of this world. We could contrast that with the path of the kingdom of God on the other side. Our world is corrupted when we walk in a worldly way. We are walking in the corrupted path. The second path here is the path of the prince of the power of the air. It's a poetic way of referring to Satan. He has temporary and limited dominion over this broken world. He is the arch enemy of God. And when we walk in rebellion against God, we are walking in the path, in the course of the prince of the power of the air. We're told more about Satan here, that he is the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, I wonder if you've really thought about the fact that you have an enemy, a powerful enemy, who wants you to walk in his way, to be deceived by his lies, to carry out his will instead of God's will, so that you will be a son or a daughter of disobedience. And I wonder if the person that you're talking to has ever thought about this. Do they, do they think of life as basically a, a neutral area and you make choices, good or bad, but there's nothing particularly dastardly trying to ruin you? The reality and the message of the Bible is that 
you have an enemy who is actively trying to destroy you. And I wonder if you explain that to them, if that would help them see things in a different perspective. Now, this probably be hard for them to accept, hard for them to, to grab hold of. And so maybe now would be a good time to, to stop and just pray for your friend about this. I'm going to pray for us about this right now. Father, we know from your word that we have an enemy. He is sneaky. He is deceitful. He is the father of lies. And he wants to destroy us. Father, help us to perceive clearly the the way that our enemy is trying to pull us away from you so that we can resist him, so that we can choose to, to walk in your ways, not in the, the ways of the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Lord, open our eyes, take the blinders off our eyes so that we can see clearly the truth of the battle that is raging around us and that we can be soldiers fighting on your side of the battle, not deceived into fighting against you on the wrong side. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 3 of chapter 2 says this, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now notice, Paul includes himself in this. Remember, before Jesus saved Paul, Paul thought he was the most religious person around. He was zealous, fighting against what he thought was a false Messiah and a false message. He includes himself here. He says, we, once, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, when, when you read about the flesh in the Bible, sometimes it's just talking about our flesh. But much of the time, it's talking about it in something of a metaphorical way to contrast it with the spirit. We get that sense here, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our flesh, they're full of desires. Sometimes we are overwhelmed with desires, whether it's hormonal desires or appetite desires or desires for power or desires to win or whatever it is, there are these passions that come rising up inside of us and sometimes we just can't make sense of them. We don't understand where they're coming from. We don't understand why we keep having to be tempted by the same things over and over again. Why does our flesh keep battling against our spirit? might be a good time in your conversation with your friend to pause and describe how you were once driven by those passions and how God has delivered you or is delivering you from them. What kind of things, what kind of passions of the body, desires of the body and the mind did you once be a slave to and now you are free from because of Christ? You may want to ask your friend, do you ever feel like no matter how hard you try, you just can't do the right thing? Like you want to do this, you want to avoid this other thing, and yet you keep choosing the wrong thing, and it's almost like it's out of your control. That's what Paul is talking about here. Every one of us, if we're honest, understands this. Now, verse 3 ends here by talking about the idea of our inherited or original sin. 
It says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in the verse before that, we've got our personal sin. We're choosing to walk in the course of the world or the course of the prince of the power of the air. And now we're talking about how we are by nature children of wrath. Since the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, each one of us have inherited a sin nature. And then we, we very enthusiastically build on that foundation with our own sins. But it's important for us to understand that we are by nature, according to this verse, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, our world does not want to believe that. Right? Our, our world wants to say people are born basically good, and they, they live in a corrupt society, and so they quickly learn to be bad, but by nature, we're all okay. That is not the message of the Bible, though. The message of the Bible is that we are by nature children of wrath. Now, that's really bad news. At least we're in it together, though. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's as though we're on a sinking ship in the middle of the ocean. We've got each other, but we're still going down. Maybe you saw a news report this week about the cargo ship off the coast of Hong Kong. It was caught in a typhoon, broke in half, and sunk. Imagine what it takes to break a modern cargo ship in half. Just amazing. This next picture is part of the rescue attempt. Because all the different cargo areas are sealed off from each other, it continued to float for a little while. A helicopter could get out there from the mainland and try to rescue them. Three of the 30 were rescued. Just three. Now, before that rescue, they were like, us, naturally. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, all in the same ship, together with each other, but going down. And then, from above, no work of their own, three of them are plucked out, rescued. That is an echo of the gospel. Those three, they didn't deserve it. They were children of wrath, just like all the rest of them. But they were plucked out and saved. So this leads us to the, the second part of our passage. This leads us to the good news. The transition point comes in the beginning of verse 4. This is what I like to refer to as the big but of God. We see this a few times in the New Testament. It's the hinge on which the gospel door swings or the pivot on which the gospel teeter-totter teeters and totters. We've got the first three verses of chapter 2, they're the really bad news. Then we've got the last seven verses of our passage here, and they are the gospel, the really good news. And the thing that marks the tipping point is this big but of God. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because the great love with which he loved us. And so if we were just reading this through the first time, we would think, well, that was a pretty abrupt change, Right? You're dead. You're full of sin. You're children of wrath. But God. But God. You could have just left it with verse 3, right? It's what we deserved, but he goes on. Why did he go on? 
Because God is rich in mercy, Paul tells us. I wonder if you could define what mercy is. Could you explain that to your lost friend or family member? Easiest way for me to remember mercy is that mercy is not getting the bad things you deserve. The judgment, the condemnation, the punishment. Mercy is not getting that bad thing that you deserve. The Bible says that we all deserve punishment, judgment. But God, being rich in mercy. Notice, he doesn't just have a limited supply of mercy that he can give a little bit out to those of us who are best. God is rich in mercy. He's full of mercy. It's mercy oozes out of him. And this is great news because I am full of sin and sin oozes out of me and I need much mercy. So does the person that you're talking to. They need to understand this. They need to, to understand that God doesn't just overlook our sin and say, it's not a big deal, you all mess up. God is not ignorant of our sin. He's not dismissive of our sin. Instead, God sees our sin clearly, but being full of mercy, he does something about it. It says, because of the great love which with, with which he loved us. God loves us. He loves your, your lost friend or, or neighbor. And for many people, if they believe that, they believe it on a just kind of a surface, like fluffy, Disney-esque kind of love. But if they could understand deeply that God clearly sees all of their sin, even the sin that's hidden from themselves. God clearly sees all of it, but chooses to love us intentionally, and not ignorantly, but with full knowledge that God chooses to love us. Well, that can really change somebody's perspective. The person that you love and that you want to get this message to, do they understand that God loves them in this fully informed, fully intentional way. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So did God wait for us to get ourselves cleaned up before he loved us? No, he did not. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Again, dead people don't do much work. Work must be done on our behalf. We see this very clearly in the book of Romans. So if you flip to Romans 5, 8, you'll see this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's that big but of God again showing up in Romans. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is really good news. You didn't have to get yourself cleaned up before God saved you. Your lost friend or neighbor that you're talking to, they don't have to get themselves cleaned up to be saved by Jesus. Romans 5.10, just two verses later, makes this point a little bit different approach for us. For if while we were enemies, 
you believe that you were an enemy of God before he saved you? Does your friend believe that they're an enemy of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So when were we reconciled? While we were still enemies. Don't skip over this. You got to share the offensiveness, the reality of our sin, so that the good news, the truly good news, can be received. You were an enemy of God, but God loved you. Your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, they are an enemy of God, but God loves them. Let's go back to Ephesians 2 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now that little piece at the end there, that's going to come back later, but notice in the first part, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice, just like all of the stuff before this, it is God who is doing the acting. It is God who is doing the saving. It doesn't say that we made ourselves alive. No, God made us alive. That's the hope of the gospel, because if it's up to us, we're hopeless. But God does it for us. So to summarize where we've been so far, we could just say this. You were dead, but God made you alive. That's what we've got so far. You were dead, but God made you alive. It's past tense, but it's passive. It's a work done for you. It's absolutely crucial to understanding the gospel. Because most people think Christianity is about being better, trying harder, being a good person. That is not the case. What else did God do for us? Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this is something that has been done for us in the past, and yet the reality of it is still out in the future. It is true, it is guaranteed, just like our inheritance that we saw in chapter 1. Our inheritance is guaranteed for us by the sealing of the Spirit. Someday we will see the reality of the fact that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. For right now we're stuck in the already, not yet. It's already true, it's not yet realized by us, but it is guaranteed. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in the future, in the coming ages, God's going to show something to us, to all creation, to the angels. What's he going to show? He's going to show his grace. He's going to put it on display. He's going to reveal it. Notice how Paul talks about it. It echoes from chapter 1, this idea of being immeasurable. You can't measure it. it there's, there's no metric for it. There's not a tape measure large enough. There's not a scale grand enough to quantify the grace of God. Notice also that this is revealed in kindness towards us. God is kind toward us. Now, 
many in the world, maybe the person that you're talking to in this conversation, they picture God as a grumpy old man in the sky who's yelling at us across his backyard fence. Takes delight when we slip on the ice. That is not a picture of God in the Bible. Just in this verse, we're told that his immeasurable grace is linked to his kindness. God approaches us in kindness, even though we don't deserve it. Your friend needs to know that. And now we get to the core of this passage, the core of the first half of Ephesians especially, the core of the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. So whoever it is you're talking to, after you've made the case earlier that we're all sinful and hopeless without Christ, they're probably still holding on to this this delusional thought that maybe they'll be good enough and then God would let them in. It's so ingrained in us in the culture to think that we're just hopefully good enough to get in, and if we get back to these verses here at the end, and it, it hits them again, it tells us that it is not our goodness, it's not our re- religious observance, it's not our generosity, it's not our kindness that gets us in. For by grace, by grace, grace is the word gift, and Paul makes that point. Right after that, it's not your own doing, is the gift of God. Most people in the world, including a lot of Christians, we're a little fuzzy on the idea of what grace is. It's, it's a word that we don't tend to use much in regular life. We may talk about somebody being graceful or gracious, but to define what grace is, that's a little harder. If we're definition of mercy was not getting the bad things you deserve. Grace would be the opposite of that. It is getting the good things you don't deserve. It's a gift given to us by God, freely given to us. It is a good gift. How is this gift given to us? Or more accurately, how is it received by us? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not in what you do. It's not in how you perform. Your friend needs to know that. They can't perform well enough. Grace is delivered to them, received by them, through faith. Now, you have heard me say many, many times that when we talk about faith or belief in the Bible, we're not talking about just a mental agreement or sent to, yes, I believe that Jesus lived, I believe that he died, I believe that he rose from the dead. Just agreeing that that happens, that is not faith. Just saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Some kind of squishy, hard-to-find, hard-to-find way. That's not what the Bible means by saving faith. That coin of saving faith in the Bible is always two-sided. you got the repentance side and you got the belief side. The repentance is turning away from trusting in yourself, away from trusting in your own goodness. The belief side is turning towards trusting in Christ 
alone. And your friend, your neighbor, your family member needs to understand that desperately. Because if they've been around church in the United States for a while, they have probably heard a perversion of that. Because the evangelical church in America for decades has tried to remove the repentance side of that coin and just say, just just believe in Jesus, whatever that means, and you'll be saved. And what we end up is with half of the gospel, an incomplete gospel, a powerless gospel. And so they need to understand it's not just adding Jesus to your life. It's turning away from your old life, away from your old trusting in yourself, hoping in yourself. It's turning towards trusting in Christ alone. Those are the words of truth that your friend desperately needs to hear. In case Paul hadn't made the point abundantly clear to us, he goes on and says, it's not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Like, wake up, people. You were not saved because of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Now, if you've got that down, if, if you've helped your, your friend, your neighbor understand that, maybe God is working in them, and they're like, I, I believe this. What do I do now? I believe that I'm lost without Christ. I believe that, that if I trust only in him and I turn away from trusting in myself, that I can be saved. What am I to do with that? If your friend asks you that, what would you say to him? I would suggest that once you ask him some questions, make sure he's really understanding, that you help him figure out how to pray, in which he, he confesses his sinfulness. He confesses his need for God. He asks Jesus to, ref- to forgive him, to make him into a new creation, to save him. Now, if you're talking to a younger person, you, you may have to walk them through that even a line at a time. Like, you say a line, then they say a line, and you say a line, they say a line. But if you're talking to an older person, especially an adult, you don't have to put the words in their mouth. Explain the reality to them. Say, you can come to God right now. You can confess your sinfulness. You can ask for forgiveness, and he will save you. Now, what if, what if you've done that? And your, your friend has enthusiastically responded, yes, that's what I want to do. And he prays it, and he's like, I can't believe that was all it took. Somehow God has saved me. Now what do I do? How do I grow? How am I supposed to live? Well, that is a whole lot more than we can deal with in today's sermon, right? But notice that Paul ends this section by partially answering that question. Verse 10 points us to the future. What do you do once Jesus has saved you? He's been really clear that it's not your good works that save you, but there is a role for good works. We see that in verse 10. That role for good works is after salvation, and it's out of thankfulness. Not out of trying to justify yourself. Not out of trying to get yourself accepted by God, but out of thankfulness, out of gratitude for being justified already by grace through faith. We respond with a life of good works. Verse 10. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the past tense again there. We've got the present, we are his workmanship, but we are created, past tense, in Christ Jesus for good works. And notice again, this is God at work. We are his workmanship. He created us. That is, he remade us. We are reborn, born again in him, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the rest of your life is to be one of living for Christ and loving Christ's people. Notice that even in this, even in this commission of sorts to go out and do good works, it originates with God. It says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just like we are dependent on Christ for our salvation, we are dependent on Christ for our sanctification, for our becoming more holy, for our working out our lives through these good works. He prepares them beforehand. He doesn't just dream them up and make a list and assign them to us. He prepares them. He's at work in us and for us, getting those works ready for us to walk in them. So before we used to walk in the course of the world, we used to walk in the course of the prince of the power of the, of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now we are to walk in these good works which God prepared beforehand for us. All of the Christian life, salvation, sanctification, our eventual glorification, all of it, we are dependent on the work of God on our behalf. That is good news. Here's the last point. Hidden in that verse 10 is the phrase, in Christ. That's the last phrase of our sermon title. I thought about titling this sermon, The Big Butt of God, but then I figured nobody would listen. Instead, I borrowed the phrasing from Ephesians and from the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation was built on the idea of five solas. Sola is the Latin word for alone or only. So, We see here in Ephesians 2, the first three of the five solas. We are saved, or we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In a few minutes, we're going to sing the song, In Christ Alone, which is a beautiful celebration of this truth. The gospel message is not clean yourself up and be impressive so that God will love you, but you were a miserable wretch, an enemy of God, but God loved you anyway, and he saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your friends and neighbors and family members, they desperately need to hear that message. We've walked through these 10 verses now with that lens of sharing it with somebody else. And I'm going to pray in just a moment that God would make arrangements for us to have opportunities to have this sort of conversation with somebody who needs to hear it. Then we're going to reflect for a couple minutes, take communion, 
and sing our last song together. Let's pray. Father, those of us who are in Christ, we need to be reminded the fact that all of this originates with you. All of this is completed with you. Yes, we are called to lives of good works, but our good works do nothing to save us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that saves us, for giving us the gift of your grace, the gift of faith even to respond to your grace, and that all of this only comes to us in Christ. Lord, we each have people in our lives that need to know and understand this. They need to be rescued by you. They need to hear the gospel and respond with repentance and faith. Lord, please use us, some of us even this week, to have this kind of conversation with somebody who needs to be transformed by you. Pray that you would go ahead of us, that you would be preparing the hearts and the minds of the people that you have for us, so that when we have that conversation, they are ready to hear and understand and embrace and be changed by this good news. Lord, we are full of fear and trepidation as we think about the idea of starting and having a conversation like that, and yet we thank you that all of those fundamental things of the gospel are found here in this one passage, and and we can use that as a guide. Thank you for working through Paul 2,000 years ago to write this for us, not only for our benefit, but that we might share it with others. Please use us, Lord. Use us to share this good news, this gospel message, with people who so desperately need to hear it. In Jesus' name.